The History Files. We bring history to you. Good morning and welcome to The History Files. How's it going today, Gordon? Doing great. Uh, today we want to talk about... The Ukraine. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to start with our usual media at the beginning um, that provide the audience a source for some background on this uh, issue and how the Ukraine has fit into movies, literature, and those kinds of thin things, and then get into a mashup, if you will, of, of uh, the Ukraine and the history as a way to help understand, maybe ask some questions about what's happening right now. History lives again. What are some of the media pieces, if you will, are out there uh, for folks to pick up where we're going? Well, first off, as far as uh, books go, if you want a good background on, now it's very nationalist, but it's a background on where the Russians are coming from, there's a book called With Fire and Sword, uh, with by uh, I believe it's by Nikolai Gogol. He also wrote Another interesting book, Taras Bulba, which is about the Zaporozhsky uh, Cossacks fighting the Poles in the 17th century. It was made loosely tra <laughs> transposed into a uh, film starring Yul Brenner and Tony Coitus, uh, 1962. It's got some really good scenes, but the importance of it is to show some of the tensions that were going on. Ukraine, which we'll go into later, is a country that's been overrun and conquered many times in its history. Um, while you're reading either With Fire and Sword or Taras Bulba, uh, or reading uh, Alfred Lord Nesson's poem Charge of the Light Brigade, which of course took place in Crimea, I urge you to listen to 1812 Overture, which is about the French invasion of Russia in 1812 under Napoleon. I mentioned the Crimea and the Crimean War. Uh, there's several books out on the charge of the Light Brigade uh, and the Crimean War. There's also uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem which he wrote just six weeks after the fact, which is barely enough time for word to have gotten back to England about it. Of course, they did have telegraphs at that time, so I guess that's not that unusual. But there was also a, several marvelous movies. There's the Errol Flynn version, which has nothing to do with history. And there's the 1968 version of Charge of the Light Brigade, which is a very, very late 60s production in that it's anti-war and anti-military, but the costumes are phenomenal, and the portrayal of uh, Lord Cardigan by um, oh, Trevor Howard is marvelous. That man was born to portray Lord Cardigan. Uh, it, it's just a marvelous movie. So these will give you just a hint of some of the history that was going on with Ukraine and the Crimea, and maybe give you an idea of why the Russians feel very proprietary towards events going on in Ukraine. Okay. Well, as a guy sitting here in Kingston, Washington, I gotta ask the question, why should I care about what's going on in the Ukraine? Um, 
my understanding is there's a long history um, from the Soviet or strike that the Russian perspective on in that piece of geography uh, Europeans Western Europeans have investigated fought over paid attention to it why should we be concerned about um, the Russian bearer and what's going on there what's what's the history of that what's and what's the contemporary implications Ukraine has had a long history of interaction with the West it was the breadbasket of Greece for example of uh, classical Greece most of the grains that fed the Greek city-states such as Athens and Sparta and Corinth all these other ones came from the Black Sea, meaning they really came from what present-day Ukraine. Um, so there's always been an interest. Ukraine has been the breadbasket of a lot of Europe, certainly and of Russia, forever <laughs> since then. Um, the Russians have a huge interest in Ukraine because... Kiev is considered the birthplace of Russian culture, the the Russian people. But why does the far west care? Like, why does NATO care about Ukraine? Other than maybe to hold, I don't know, for the food, perhaps. That was certainly in Germany's interest during World War One. They wanted Ukraine for that, World War Two as well. What interest does the United States have in Ukraine? I struggle to find out and to figure it out. Well, I, I share your struggle. And so I've, I've got a couple of thoughts uh, that I, I think would be kind of fun to explore. Let's, how about self determination? Do we, as, I mean, I'm say the West, NATO, um, is, it in our best interest should I care because there's a group of people that are fighting for the right of self-government before I get into answering that I gotta mention that I really screwed up on the author of With Fire and Sword it's Henrik Sankiewicz rather than Gogol my apologies to my Polish friends and Russian friends for that one why should we care what's going on there? Uh, it's Self-determination is something that doesn't seem to have existed in anybody's mind prior to President Wilson coming up with his 14 points uh, during World War One, And these 14 points were glorious, wonderful things and were the basis of the Germans asking for an armistice so they could discuss these 14 points and lead that to lead to a, a peace. Well, of course, the Allies immediately threw that in the trash once the, the German army had evacuated itself from France. The Allies moved into Germany. Self-determination, even though it's one of the hallmarks of the 14 points, uh, along with, you know, uh, plebiscites and whatnot. The fact that the Austrians want, had a plebiscite and asked to join with Germany, tossed out. Uh, lines were drawn in the Middle East to cut up the Turkish Empire. Nobody asked anybody living there if they liked it or not. So, and we still enforce those particular boundaries, those, those uh, borders. Nobody asks anybody living there, so I really fail to see where self-determination comes in, other than as a very fancy term used, bandied about for our, for our benefit, not for the people who supposedly want self-determination. They do, but we don't allow it unless it suits our purpose. So self-determination, from our perspective historically is one where so long as they're self-determining in a direction that we would like them to go, it's okay. Precisely. Uh, 
reflecting on uh, Ho Chi Minh and the partition and the guarantee of the 
against a popularly elected government. Now, the popularly elected government happened to be incredibly corrupt, pro-Russian, and had just made a deal with the Russians over loans and some uh, and, uh, energy resources that the Russians were darn near giving away. But that didn't suit our ideas, our plans for putting them in debt and stripping their economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're dealing with a, frankly, if all you got to do is look a little bit, a neo-Nazi regime. These guys fly flags that have swastikas on them. Some of the, the major supporters of this regime are, they, they're neo-Nazis. And last time I remember, the last time we fought anybody in Ukraine or supported fighting somebody in Ukraine flying flags with swastikas, we were on the same side as the Russians. So maybe the Ukrainians want to be Nazis. I don't know. But our historical perspective is to fight those guys alongside the Russians, or at least give them monetary support. Where's where's our benefit? I'm I'm hasn't, still at a loss. Hasn't shown hasn't shown up yet, or hasn't been made clear. Um, money. Okay, your your description. I, I use currency as as a metaphor for power, uh, valuable goods, etc. You mentioned money and investment. Is there uh, industrial interests that might uh, play into this? We dropped a whole bunch of our Vietnam era iron bombs on Iraq. Uh, it's good to clean out the inventory. We've got up-and-coming military hardware. Uh, an F-35 comes to mind in the dilemma with the A-10. It does. Does those kind do those kinds of issues play into this analysis in your mind? I I, I do think so. Uh, we have not fought anybody since Korea that had an air force worth even talking about and during the Korean War oddly enough the North Korean Air Force had a lot of blonde blue-eyed fellows who spoke Russian fluently um, the last time we had a really serious air combat was against Nazi Germany so we've been building airplanes you know fast attack fighters for couple of generations now with nobody to play with and all of the wars since Korea that we've been involved in whether it's Vietnam Iraq Iraq the first time Iraq the second time Afghanistan Somalia you name it all of our serious use of aircraft has been ground support or maybe some bombing missions here and there we bombed the heck out of Serbia in, under the Clinton regime, but our um, the guys in the Air Force who like to fly real fast planes uh, don't have anybody to play with, and they don't have a reason to buy such cool toys like the F thirty five, which is supposed to be the next generation or the generation past whatever uh, whatever their sales hype is about uh, you know next generation aircraft well the problem is they've sunk was it 1.5 trillion dollars into this program and they've come up with something that isn't really working all that well uh, yet for some incredibly much lower price like I don't know 1.8 million dollars you can buy yourself an A10 which has proven itself again for generations a couple of generations to be a superb ground support airplane but it doesn't bring in big bucks to anybody and it's not a glorified um, it's not sexy it's not sexy 
The Air Force doesn't like it. But the infantry sure as heck do. Guys on the ground love it because it does what it's supposed to do. It does it very, very well. The pilots who fly it can feel very safe in it because they're wearing a, they're flying a tank. It was built around this 30-millimeter Gatling gun, and it's a marvelous, cheap, serviceable, efficient platform that does what it's supposed to do. But it's not outrageously expensive, therefore, well, why would we want to buy those? Why would we want to use more of those? Um, the Russians and the Chinese are the only guys to play with as far as actual, you know, air-to-air combat. Our producer just said, uh, sent me a note saying, it's the Volvo of uh, tactical aircraft. It does what it's supposed to do, and it does it efficiently. I was thinking more of a Chevy pickup, but... Uh, or maybe a Ford. Anyway, it's a, it's a good, solid vehicle, but it's not sexy. And so... The Volvo station wagon versus the Corvette type of thing. It's a Volvo, but against a Saab. How's Saab. That? <laughs> and and so, from a uh, economic industrial perspective, we have to have um, an adversary worthy of the astronomical investment that we're making in technology. Um, who was the biggest loser with the end of the Cold War? Yeah, the military-industrial complex. And so if we're stuck in uh, combat or in, in altercations where arms like the A-10, old-fashioned, if you will, not fourth, fifth-generation weapons are absolutely suitable there's no money to be made but if we go against high tech then there's an argument for we got to keep up with the joneses right and the only guys in town <laughs> the only other kids on the block to play with are the russians it's even the chinese buy russian technology as far as aircraft and stuff goes so that's quite a jump from the morality of self-determination and the ethics of self-determination to finance the root of the possible root of these things is ultimately dollars as currency dollars as currency right absolutely and i would i don't even think that the neocons that are behind this mix up in ukraine even think that they're going to go into a war i don't think their ultimate Desires to actually fight the Russians. I think they're just playing a, a rather silly game against the Russians, trying to. That's for the home team. It's more for domestic consumption to get the American people all riled up and, oh, yeah, we need to spend money on this. Um, because otherwise, why, why does the United States have the biggest military budget in the world? You know, like a third of the budget. Um, for the federal government is military spending. Why are we spending all this money? Oh, we got to have a boogeyman. We sort of thumped on most of the available Muslims. And so, well, let's go back to the Russians. They were, they were fun the last time. We spent a lot of money on fight, quote, fighting, end quote, them. Waiting for them to rush through the full the gap, which they never bothered to do. So the notion of proxy wars... Um, how does how does that play into the, what I'll categorize as our two extremes the the, the self determination argument on one hand and the military industrial complex uh, and who coined that phrase that was uh, President uh, Eisenhower in fact in, in his, what year in 1960 I believe it was he came up with that well somebody in his administration came up with that term and it's we don't use the full one the original term was military industrial congressional complex all the money that flows around coming out of taxpayer coffers that go into the military the pentagon into the industry that supports the pentagon or vice versa and then all the congressmen 
who have their hand in the pockets of everybody else. Ambrose Bierce said that an alliance is when two countries have their hands so firmly thrust into each other's pockets that they have to work together in order to successfully plunder a third. That's the military-industrial complex. They each have their hands deep into each other's pockets, and unfortunately those pockets are being filled by the taxpayer, uh, and they're, they're not going to let that dry up. How do, how do proxy wars... And first, first off, let's let's define proxy war. How how would you use that term? The classical proxy war is where you're sending money and support to one country to fight another country, which is being sent money and support by a yet a fourth country. Uh, an example of that would be uh, the Vietnam War. When the French were fighting in Vietnam from eighteen uh, from nineteen forty six to nineteen fifty four, and when it was back when it was French Indochina, the Russians and Chinese were supporting Ho Chi Minh. The United States was supporting France. That was a perfect proxy war because no American soldiers were getting killed. Unfortunately, when the French got kicked out. Uh, Somebody in the United States seems to have decided that that means since the French failed, obviously we can succeed. So we started sending our own troops in to because the Vietnamese that we were that were going to be our proxy couldn't do it. The South Vietnamese and South Vietnam was of course a a product of American intervention in the first place. <clears throat> the South Vietnamese were another, their government was a, a standard kleptocracy, and the people just didn't like them. So they didn't have the support from the local, you know, from the populace. So we had to send more and more stuff and more and more people. It was a marvelous uh, economic boon to the high upper classes of South Vietnam, but uh, only, you know, probably killed a good million Vietnamese. Anyway, our proxy wars seem to have, in the last, well, since World War II, turned into proxy wars where we're sending our troops in to fight the troops of somebody else who's being supported by yet a third country. So it's they're not technically the proxy wars of, of yesteryear. So you've referenced Vietnam, the French... Uh, Korea is embedded in that uh, from 1950 to 54, 53-ish. What lessons from recent history, as you mentioned, could be gleaned to apply to the Ukraine? And this is kind of a tying this all together with where do proxy wars work where have they worked assuming uh, you've got defined goals we've got self-determination on one hand military industrial complex on the other Um, where in that morass has have proxy wars served a function and what is that function well I'd say as far as Ukraine goes, if we have any intelligence at all in in the depths of, of the District of Columbia, we will keep it a proxy war and not send American boots on the ground to get involved because that's on the Russians' doorstep. In fact, that's sort of in their front room. It's a bad idea to send American troops who might get into, even, even if they're just advisors, if American troops started who are advisors start shooting Russians who are advisors, bad things, bad things can happen. If we keep it just Ukrainians shooting, you know, separatist Ukrainians who speak Russian, that's not quite as bad. That's a good proxy war. We can fight the Russians all week long in Donetsk as long as we don't have boots on the ground. 
but that doesn't spend as much money uh, because, well, we don't can't send our air force in we can't send naval vessels into the Black Sea, which we actually have done but not any aircraft carriers luckily there's a treaty that says we can't do that <laughs> the Turks won't let us but where's it going? Uh, I can't see anything good other than us getting the heck out letting the Ukrainians or letting letting the Europeans deal with it. What do they have? What skin in the game do they have? Uh, energy. They they a large percentage of the gas, the heating gas, natural gas that heats European homes comes from Russia. It goes through Ukraine. The Russians have said we're stopping that. Because first off, Ukrainians are tapping into it and stealing the gas that, whether they are or not, who knows, but that's the, the point the Russians are making, their rationale for it. Uh, and so the Germans and the French and Poles and um, you name it are going to have to think, wow, how are we going to heat our homes? How are we going to cook food without Russian natural gas? Um, Recently, in fact, just just last week, there was a, a treaty that was hammered out between President Putin of Russia uh, and Premier Merkel of Germany and Premier um, Hollande, Hollande of France to try to smooth things out to get a ceasefire going in eastern Ukraine. The, the Germans and the French have, with, within historical memory, some really bad, bad uh, memories of fighting the Russians. Uh, not only did Napoleon invade Russia in 1812 with the result of having Russian troops marching in Paris five years later, well, three years later, we also have the, the Germans invading Russia in 1941 only to have the Red Army blowing up most of Berlin in 1945. Both sides have some... All sides have... They know that the other guys are kind of tough and maybe we ought to... Maybe we ought to negotiate things because things can go very poorly very quickly. The United States doesn't seem to have that. We've had... We have these moats on either side, the Pacific and the Atlantic. We haven't, we haven't had anybody burn down our, our cities since 1864 when Sherman burned Atlanta. That was Americans killing Americans. We don't have any historical mythology about this. We don't have any feelings about how bad things can get. Well, you, you bring up a very interesting point from my perspective, um, is that even today you can talk to people face to face who in Europe who suffered through bombings the carnage of ground war um, does does that have any play here in terms of of the American populace, the American community not having the experience that you're describing abject horror and that they know in real world terms what war looks like. Yes. The, we just had the 70th anniversary of the bombing, bombing of Dresden. And there are people who I've heard interviewed who survived it somehow. And they can't believe that the place has been rebuilt because of the absolute devastation. Something like 25,000 people were killed in one night uh, with our actually useless bombing of Dresden. It, it fulfilled no practical purpose. My assumption, and a lot of other historians' assumption, has been that 
Bombing Dresden was either purely revenge for the Germans bombing London, or it was just to show the Soviets what we could do, because it wasn't even going to be in the American or British or French sectors. It was in the Russian sector. So, yeah, this is what we can do to Moscow, guys. Well, we didn't realize that all the Russians had to do was look at, at Stalingrad and say, yeah, we know what's going to happen. We, we've seen this. 20 million Russians died in World War II. They've got a clue. They have an institutional memory of what wars are like. We haven't the faintest notion. The Russians lost more men taking Berlin in 1945 than we lost in the whole friggin' war. We're, we're the sassy fat kid who's never been in a fight by comparison. We don't know what a bloody nose feels like. And we're full of ourselves and tough. And, you know, this isn't to denigrate our fighting men and women. But as far as the American populace goes, we don't have a clue. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you brought up the American fighting men and women. Um, I find myself saddened by the fact that not only do we not listen as a society to the ugly realities of what they went through for their own benefit of of recovery and transitioning back into our community but their experiences don't seem to play into the national conversation about the significance of that we don't want to hear about ugly stuff we just want to know that we went we won and get out um we have a very sports team attitude towards international politics that's a <laughs> that's a really brilliant way of looking at it um and again uh, trying to bring things around but lens of analysis is one of my favorite uh terms and sports team mentality uh we talked about proxy wars and the in the value as a lens of analysis self-determination uh the military industrial complex and in bringing it up in this framework asking our listeners to develop a lens of analysis and looking at different situations in a in a number of different ways and even if you want to take self-determination one step farther out humanitarian reasons for getting involved um rwanda in somalia yeah we got involved in in the former Yugoslavia for supposedly humanitarian reasons. So that's why we bombed Serbia, to keep Serbs who weren't in Serbia from killing people in Bosnia. Okay. Yet, very shortly thereafter, there was this massive slaughter of, of Tutsi tribal people in Rwanda by the... Um, Hutus. Hutus. UN troops stood by and watched. Why? Well, that's not our business. Well, why is it our business in U in Yugoslavia or Ukraine where it's not in Rwanda or anywhere else in Africa? Is <laughs> We could go places with that that uh, <laughs> as to value of life. Yeah. You know, do these lives matter? Obviously not. Not as far as international politics are concerned. So in in asking uh people, be it congressional leaders down to the nuts and bolts populace, um and so the history files how how does one look at how would you look at things or, or suggest to students and interested people? How, how do you look at great successes and horrific failures? Um, 
as a general observation, World War II is a success. World War II is a success because there was finality to it. After World War I, there wasn't finality because Germany hadn't really been invaded. Um, there was a breathing space between World War I and II because they're really parts A and B of the same war. World War II, there was finality. Germany was prostrate. There were Russian troops in Berlin, American troops, you know, uh, and British troops and French troops all over Germany. Japan was on its face because we nuked them. There was, there was no way anybody could deny that we won that war. The United States stood, stood tall and strong because we were the only ones that were unscathed. Yeah, we lost some men and we expended a lot of, of energy and resources in it, but we won that one. Now, as Stalin said, it was one with Russian lives and American money, but they lost a lot of lives and we didn't. We just spent money, which we had plenty of. There hasn't been a war since then that has had that kind of finality to it at all. Korea, that ended in a stalemate. Vietnam, we lost. If our, if our proposition in getting into it was to make South Vietnam a, an independent capitalist nation, we failed. Um, but at the end of World War II, we went in and because we were the hegemon and could do anything we wanted to, what we wanted to do was build up Japan and Germany as our allies. In that war, we took the two most uh, productive people on the planet other than ourselves. We destroyed them, and then we built them back up and made them our friends. Right now, we there are staunchest allies, Japan and, and Germany, aside from Great Britain, who we also helped pull up from the ashes. I mean, that that was... That was the humanitarian thing to do that was also the smart thing to do and it was also the economically feasible and rational thing to do. Build your enemy back up so he's a friend. Again, since then, we've had no successes of that nature at all. We've spent a lot of money, we've spent a lot of resources, spent a lot of lives. You can't call Korea a failure because South Korea is one of the most vibrant economies in the world. But we... <laughs> It ended in a stalemate. We lost in Vietnam. Uh, we've destroyed the infrastructure and government of Iraq several times over. Afghanistan has never had a government, <laughs> central government of any sort. And so we just go out and shoot a bunch of people who like shooting at us. Uh, the Afghanis just love fighting. So how do you win in a war where they enjoy it? So the notion of winning and losing outcomes in those types of issues seem to get blurred and I, I can't help but go back to the lens of analysis then why do it and if you do, do it being get involved in the internal affairs of others started out with Ukraine uh, and we made it down to Africa, Asia, and now getting back to Europe. We don't seem to have a history of winning beyond after 1945. We have what's appear to be very uh, ambiguous or maybe selective notions of why we choose to get involved, humanitarian arguments, the Islamic State, um, why we choose to get involved, the humanitarian makes for good press, but we only really throw resources behind it if there is currency involved and profit motive.
do we have a profit motive in being involved in Ukraine beyond that military industrial complex argument we we need to unload our 1960s vintage iron bombs now we need new technology in the form of F-35 and you name it and there's money to be made in that well most of our wars historically have been extremely profitable for the United States the Mexican war we took half of Mexico and added a third to our own uh, to our own country by that civil war you say well how was that profitable well the north turned the south into a colony and the north basically uh, sucked resources and funds out of the south for the next hundred years and kept it as a colony uh, the Spanish-American war which we talked about last we ended up keeping uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines at the same time we got Hawaii we, it was enormously profitable World War I was not profitable to us at all and therefore there was a huge anti-war sentiment in the 20s and 30s because we felt we'd gotten screwed Wilson's 14 points and the whole ideology that we went into the war with was tossed aside at the uh, at the at Versailles Treaty tables. World War II wasn't profitable to us in the sense of of gains, other than we were the hegemon and we could do whatever we wanted in that regard. Since then, it does seem that most of our wars have been at least propagandized as as humanitarian efforts. Oh, we have to save the poor people of Korea. We have to save the poor people of South Vietnam. We have to rescue the Somalis from themselves. We have to rescue the Bosnians from the Serbs. And we have to rescue people in the Middle East from ISIS, Islamic State, the Caliphate, whatever you want to call it. Um, the the lens of analysis, as you put it, and by the way, I want to mention that Dylan is a has a master's degree in political science, so he knows very well what he speaks when we're talking politics here. The lens of analysis seems to be since World War II, we, the reasons that are given for us going into wars don't seem to jibe very accurately with the results we we have. We go in to save people, yet we end up killing a whole lot more of them, the, the civilian population, than would have otherwise been been slaughtered. Afghanistan's a great example. So is a, uh, Iran, or pardon me, Iraq. God knows how many people we've killed in Iraq. Uh, Saddam didn't have the resources to do that, and we merrily have done it. We wanted to overthrow Syria, the Syrian government of Assad, for humanitarian reasons, because he's mean to his people, like Saddam was. So we put together ISIS, which is now merrily slaughtering people all over the Middle East. Okay, well, that kind of backfired. But it did allow us to get rid of a whole lot of ordnance that we shipped off to the um, Iraqis that they sort of handed over. And now we have to replace so going into Ukraine, again, one tends to have a cynical eye towards why, what are we getting, what is, what is the average person in the United States getting out of us going in there? What is the average person of Ukraine getting out of it if we get involved in Ukraine? Mm, they're likely to die and we're likely to spend more taxes or be further in debt, which is about the same thing. So the lens of analysis, if you use the humanitarian lens, uh, it comes up very short. But if you use what I'm calling the opposite end of the spectrum, the military-industrial complex, the hard currency uh, 
lens, there's reasons to poke the bear mm-hmm. so that we have a resurrected Cold War uh, antagonist that we can uh, keep up with in terms of our military technology. Correct. Also, as far as Ukraine goes, according to the reports I've read, Ukrainians in their popularly elected government had a fair amount of of gold in reserve in their central bank. Now they have none. What happened to it all? Uh, There are claims that People in black uniforms with unmarked vehicles showed up and put it all, well, put all the Ukrainian gold and uh, airplanes and sent it off somewhere. Where'd it go? Even though most American bankers call gold a uh, a barbaric relic of the past, seems like they're pretty happy to get it. So, aside from us just spending money on weapons are we making money on making these loans these massive loans to Ukraine through the IMF the International Monetary Fund well probably um, countries that are on their knees that we decide we're going to help through loans sort of like student loans you're helping somebody by giving them thirty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars in debt that they get to spend the rest of their life paying off for a product that isn't necessarily helping them actually pay that <laughs> debt off. So I think there's a lot of good, monet- quote, good, end quote, monetary reasons for us to be involved in Ukraine uh, for the people who make money off of that sort of thing. As far as us, the average Joe on the street, nah, I don't see a lot. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us on The History Files. And go back to reading, researching. This is Dylan Honnold. This is Gordon Fry. Signing off. The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions. If you enjoy our show, please visit us on the web at historypundit.webs.com slash historyfilesshow.htm, where you can find show notes, links to our blogs and YouTube channel, and information about upcoming events. Please consider supporting the History Files show by visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow.